Well, good morning. Pastor Don and Nancy are away at Camp Barakel this weekend. Pastor Don is speaking at their family camp, so we want to remember them in prayer this weekend. But if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, that'll be our text for this morning. It's near the back of the book. Uh, if you need a reference point, it's, you know, use the table of contents if you need to, that's why it's there. As I was thinking about this being Labor Day weekend, I thought uh, this kind of marks the unofficial end of summer in Michigan, doesn't it? Uh, we've done all of our traveling, of course, some are out this weekend trying to get the last family vacation time in together. Uh, but now it's sort of time to regroup and be home and uh, get back into the fall routine and schedule. But there's something good about being home, isn't there? Uh, as much as we like being away and, you know, enjoying northern Michigan maybe or some other place, uh, there's something about home that just puts us at ease. Uh, the familiar surroundings, you know, home is where our people are, and uh, it's a place where you can put your feet up and let your hair down if you have hair to let down. And, uh, you know, there's just a sense of belonging when it comes to being home. Because when you're a visitor somewhere, when you're a guest, uh, you're just a little bit on edge. You know, the surroundings not as familiar. Maybe you don't know uh, the people as well, the places, those kinds of things. And so it's good to be at home. But one thing Peter makes abundantly clear in this letter of 1 Peter is that in an ultimate sense, Christians will not and should not feel at home in this world. If we've sworn allegiance to Jesus Christ, then we cannot feel at home in a world that is opposed to our God and to our way of life. And he begins with this all the way at the beginning of the letter, in the very first verse, 1 Peter chapter 1. He addresses his readers, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So to be in exile, closest thing today would be like a refugee, somebody who is away from home, like a long way away from home, presumably, with no way to return on their own. That's what it means to be in exile. And he continues with this in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So this theme of exile comes up again and again in the letter of First Peter. But keep in mind, when he's writing to these churches, uh, these churches would have been made up of both Jews and Gentiles. There would have been some who were Roman citizens, like Paul was, and some who were not, uh, some who were slaves, perhaps. There would have been some who were native to the region uh, in which the church was meeting, and some would have been transplants from somewhere else, either because they were refugees or through missionary work or whatever. So the thing that made them exiles was not their political or cultural situation, but what made them exiles was their spiritual situation. Because if we love Jesus and want to follow him wholeheartedly, we will always carry with us this sense of being away from home until he returns. Because home, for the Christian, is where Jesus is. And Paul echoes this in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so if our citizenship is in heaven, then surely our greatest sense of belonging and attachment is in heaven with him as well. And when we look at the world around us, it's easy to see that we don't quite fit in here. Uh, Our worship, our beliefs, our ethics, uh, the things that we believe are right and wrong, especially sexual ethics in today's world, uh, we just don't fit in as Christians. And so if we are God's people, as Peter says we are, then we need to realize that part of our core identity, the thing we're going to carry with us as we sojourn in this life, is a feeling of being away from home. And this has always been true of God's people. Uh, All the way back when God started his plan of redemption uh, through Abraham. Uh, Abraham, our forefather in the faith, was a nomad. And he wandered the desert. Uh, In fact, the only property he ever owned, the only place that he called his own, was a cemetery plot for his wife. And when he bought that cemetery plot, in Genesis 23, he told the sellers, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. That's the same word foreigner that Peter uses for exile here in 1 Peter. Abraham was in exile with God, so to speak, during the days of his sojourning. And Psalm 39 echoes the same sentiment And it presents us with an even deeper sense of the angst that we feel in this condition. It says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest or exile, again, same word, like all my fathers. So to walk with God in this world is to be a sojourner and an exile, a foreigner and a guest. If my primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ, it is inescapable that I'm going to feel like a resident alien in this world. In fact, if we don't feel that way, there might actually be something wrong with us if we claim to be Christian. Uh, One author, David Van Drunen, said, Christians who do not feel homesick are spiritually ill. And so we need to examine ourselves. How much do we feel at home in this world? There's really kind of two main temptations, I think, for people who feel this way, who feel like they don't fit in. The first temptation is, I'm going to try and accommodate myself to the culture around me to try and fit in a little bit better. So I don't like this feeling of being dissident. I don't like the feeling of not sharing the values of the culture around me. So I'm going to make whatever kind of compromises I think I can make in order to fit in. That's one temptation. Another temptation, it seems to me, is we recognize we're not going to fit in with the world around us. And so what we do is we retreat into our Christian bubble. And we think, I'm only going to associate with other Christians, and we're just going to have our Christian friends and and do all the Christian things. But that's not exactly how God calls us to live either. That's not the template that he's set down for his people. So being in this state of exile, wandering with God, as it were, in this wilderness world, how should we live? I think that's the very question that Peter is answering for us here in 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you would follow along as I read verses 11 to 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or slaves of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So our main idea for this morning, for the note-takers, is that we should glorify God in our exile. Now there's a sense in which that's our whole reason for existence, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here as human beings. But I think this passage gives us a unique angle on that universal truth to say, how is it that we can glorify God when we feel so disillusioned in the world that we live? Well, the first way Peter explains very clearly is that we glorify God by abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Now, this is a familiar concept to us. Uh, to abstain, uh, the noun form of that is abstinence. And so we believe in abstinence for, for instance, sexual ethics. So anyone who is not in the covenant relationship of a one man and one woman marriage should abstain from having sex. That's what we believe as Christians. So we believe in abstinence and we teach abstinence. But Peter's point here is actually much broader than just that. Abstinence should be a Christian's policy for all disordered desires, for all the passions of the flesh, for all those sinful desires that still reside within us. So of course that includes uh, sexual immorality, but it also includes laziness and apathy. Uh, it also includes unrighteous anger. It includes envy and pride. All of these things and many more are passions of the flesh that still wage war in our souls. In fact, I think Peter's primary point is that pride and anger are in view, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But it's crucial that we learn to abstain from these passions of the flesh because there is a war going on inside of us. Now, it's interesting considering the context here. Peter's calling us exiles as Christians. Now, when you think of somebody in exile, you think their main problems are circumstance, right? Uh, somebody who is in exile, they're away from home, uh, probably away from family. They're without any kind of social network or safety net, without financial security. You would think those are the biggest problems for somebody in exile, but Peter says no. The biggest problems that we face as exiles is right here. It's us. There is a war being waged in our hearts. And I think it's actually true of most people, even uh, in our culture where people do feel at home, most people think their greatest problems are outside of them. It's somebody else, it's something else that's my biggest problem. And they often think that the solution to their problem is going to be found by looking for that inner peace or inner strength that's going to get them through. But the Bible couldn't be more clear, whether it was Romans 7, as we saw last week from Pastor Don, or here in 1 Peter chapter 2, the greatest obstacle we face in the Christian life 
is within. And the solution is certainly not to look within where the battle's raging, but to look to Christ. And so this shows up even in our, our prayer times. You know, when we think about the things that occupy our prayer lives when we pray, how much of the time do we spend praying about circumstance? We pray about the next event. We pray about somebody else or something else going on in life. When in reality, the battle that we need divine assistance for is the battle against the passions of our flesh, those sinful desires that still wage war against us. And so we ought to pray especially that God would change our hearts to love him and to love our neighbor more faithfully. So we need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. But the flip side of that, uh, you can't just do the negative. Sometimes we teach abstinence without any sort of positive desire to replace it. So the abstinence that Peter is teaching here is actually to be replaced with acting honorably among non-Christians. So the old theologians, uh, when they describe the passions of the flesh, they use a word called vice, uh, V-I-C-E, vice. That's the word they would use to describe the passions of the flesh. And to use the acting honorably, uh, to describe that, they would use the word virtue. So when you think about abstaining from the passions of the flesh, it's not enough to just stop doing it, just put away the vice. You have to replace it by cultivating virtue about doing what is good and right in God's sight. The African theologian Augustine said a brief and true definition of virtue is rightly ordered loves. So the problem with the passions of the flesh is that by nature, we don't love the things that we ought to love. We love things that are bad for us. We love things that are bad for other people. We love things that are dishonoring to God. And so the way that you resist that is you learn, you cultivate over time, a love for things that are good and true and beautiful. And as we learn to love the good, the true, and the beautiful, we will learn to act honorably because it's out of our desires that we speak and act. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the way we learn to cultivate those virtues, those good desires in our hearts, is by what we think about. We actually can shape our desires. Our culture wants to tell us that we're just slaves to our desires. Whatever our heart tells us to do, we got to do it. We just can't ask questions. Just do whatever your heart says. But you actually can work through meditation on Scripture by filling your mind with the truth of God's Word to love what is good. And so let me ask you, what do you think about? What occupies your mind? And have you seen a connection between the things that occupy your mind and the desires of your heart? Because there's a connection there. So on those sleepless nights or quiet moments, you know, what is it that really gets your gears turning? And is it something that's honoring to God and going to lead to a desire for what is good and actions that are honorable? Or is it going to lead you away from God? And if so, we need to repent of those things. So we need to fill our minds with what is good and what is true. And one of the things that Peter wants us to fill our minds with is the reality that every person we interact with is going to meet God someday. 
And so we need to act honorably in such a way that they will glorify God when they meet him. He references the day of visitation. Uh, That's actually a reference to Isaiah chapter 10 where he's talking about judgment day. And so on judgment day, every person we interact with will meet God. And have we lived in such a way that they will give glory to him? Is that how we think about our relationships? Is that how we think about our words and our actions towards the people that God has providentially placed in our lives? That they too will meet God. Even if right now they don't care anything about God. Even if they actively hate God right now. One day they will meet him. And there is a sense in which they will glorify him regardless. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But will they glorify God because of us? because of the good works that we did in their midst. So if you're not a Christian here today, I want to speak to you for just a moment. A lot of times, uh, our culture wants to focus on the failures of Christians throughout history. And there's certainly not a shortage of examples. You could think of the Crusades or, you know, the most recent Christian celebrity to have a moral failure. But I want you to consider the good things that we enjoy today that are the direct result of Christians who have acted in the past. Things like homeless shelters, hospitals, public schools, orphanages, all of these things are products of Christians who took their Bibles seriously and said, if this is the God that we worship, we're going to give ourselves to doing good for all of humanity. You see, in the ancient world, the pagan gods cared nothing for the poor and the vulnerable. Uh, There was no universal concept of human rights. That didn't exist in the ancient world. But when Christians heard from Jesus through his word and were empowered by the Holy Spirit, they began to do these things. And I think every one of us in here has benefited from at least one of those, if not multiples. So Christians have done good deeds not because they're inherently better, but they've done good deeds because they want to glorify the God who has created them and saved them. You think of the abolition of slavery. All throughout history, the abolition of slavery has been advocated for by Christians. In fact, again, our concept of human rights undergirds just about every good work that people devote themselves to today. And in fact, as we sort of move into a post-Christian culture increasingly, uh, these concepts like human rights and human dignity, they actually have begun to be the foundation for sinful things as well. Uh, The world has to use Christian categories in order to promote their agenda. So for instance, the human rights campaign, which advocates for unbiblical sexual ethics, uh, right there in the name, human rights, that's a Christian idea. And so I'd ask you today, if you're not a Christian, you're sitting here today, consider these things. You know, just think about the world that you live in, hospitals, schools, homeless shelters, all these things. How have you benefited from them? And do you have reason to glorify God? I think we do. But now for us Christians, how are we doing with good works? All of those references I made could be traced back to the early days of the church, the first few centuries. And to be sure, Christians all the way down to today are doing good works. But how are we doing? Have we really recognized God's hand in our lives 
in such a way that we give ourselves to doing good to our neighbors. Because again, if we accommodate ourselves to them, that's not doing them ultimate good. Uh, That's just trying to be like them. They won't see Jesus that way. And if we just retreat into our bubbles, they won't see these good works either. We won't be doing them to them. So how are we doing when it comes to glorifying God through our good works? You know, I think in our tradition, we're, we're the Bible study people. We're the theology people. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I mean, we need to study the Bible. We need to study good theology. But I think we can mistake that as the total of the Christian life. That everything about being a Christian can be reduced to, did I read my Bible today? But it's actually much more. Has reading my Bible led me to do good to my neighbor? And that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Well, Peter offers one practical application right off the bat uh, when it comes to glorifying God in our exile. And that is by submitting to human authorities, by being subject. Now, let me offer this disclaimer before we go any further. Uh, There are limits to this teaching, of course. Uh, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, with all the authority of God himself, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, said, we must obey God rather than men. So when it comes to submitting to human authorities, the limit is when those authorities contradict God's word. But be careful as we think through this in our lives that our preferences are not somehow substituted for what God actually says in his word. Because I think if we examined ourselves, we would see the vast majority of what human authorities do is totally fine within God's will. Now, there may be, and actually are, increasingly ways in which the human authorities uh, in our country go against God's will. And so we need to have a, a robust understanding of civil disobedience. And our friends at the Great Lakes Justice Center are working on a paper on that right now for us. But in the midst of these exceptions, we must obey God rather than men. I don't want us to lose sight of the real force of this inspired word from God, that it is in fact good for us to submit to the governing authorities. Now, this is not popular teaching. I realize that. Uh, Submission is not something people really want. As Pastor Doug has said, submission is the Christian virtue nobody really pursues. But in Romans 13, that Pastor Doug read a moment ago, Paul talks about submission. In Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, Paul talks about submission. In Titus chapter 3 verse 1, he says this, remind them, that is the people, Titus is a pastor, Titus, remind the people in your church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work. So frequently in the New Testament, submission is a Christian virtue. And it shows up numerous times here in our letter of 1 Peter. So you look at verse 13, it says, be subject to every human institution. Now if you glance down to verse 18, it says, servants, be subject to your masters. Then skip down to chapter three, verse one. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Submission is a Christian virtue. And why is there such an obsession with this? 
Well, one reason is, as it says in chapter 3, verse 22, as Christians, we are free to submit to governing authorities because all authorities have been subjected to Christ himself. So, in a sense, no human institution has any ultimate authority over us as Christians because we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who presides over the president, the one who governs the governors, okay, that's Jesus Christ. And so we as his followers are free to submit voluntarily. And so it should be our desire, again, putting aside the passions of the flesh and acting honorably, desiring what is good and true and beautiful. One of those good desires that we should have as Christians is to submit to human authority. That should be our default setting. And we recognize there are exceptions, and we've alluded to those. But our default setting should be submission because it is actually the passions of the flesh that resist submission. You see? Our pride, our envy, our unrighteous anger, these are the things that cause us to not want to submit. This was true all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We didn't want to submit to God's authority. And because we resisted that and chose our own path, now we're in sin and the curse. <laughs> and this is true of every instance where we're called to submit as Christians. Rightly ordered loves include a love for submission to authority. And keep in mind, in Peter's time, much like our own, the people who hold these positions of authority are not necessarily honorable people, okay? Peter, of all people, would acknowledge that. You know, Paul details all of his sufferings. He suffered at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, okay? So we recognize that there are unhonorable people, people without honor in these positions. And yet we are called to honor them, to submit to them. And so submission is actually not a passive thing where we just allow the powers that be to do whatever they want with us. But submission is a call to actively do all the good that we can, using our freedom in Christ to do that good. So because there's no ultimate authority over us in these human institutions, we're actually free not to do whatever we want to do evil, but we're free to do all the good that will bring glory to God. And so there's this paradox in the Christian life that we are simultaneously free in Christ and yet slaves to God. As Martin Luther famously said, he said, a Christian is Lord of all, completely free of everything. And a Christian is a servant, completely attentive to the needs of all. So how do we use our freedom as Christians? So there's a sense in which we're in exile. We're sort of displaced and we're called to submit to authority. But even in all of that angst, in all that unsettledness about us as Christians, we have freedom in Christ. And that freedom allows us to love and to serve others in ways that we never were able to before. Because our citizenship is in heaven, because we are slaves of God, we are bound by him to do all the good we can. So we should use our freedom for good. And we should honor the people in authority as we would honor everyone else. 
So look again at verse 17, if you will. Notice the repetition here. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, that is the church, the family of God, fear God, honor the emperor. So I think it's safe to say that we should honor people in authority as we would honor everyone else. Even non-Christians, dishonorable people, we should honor them just the same. And so what that means is mocking, slander, malicious comments about people in authority have no place among us as Christians. If you're familiar with the slogan, let's go Brandon, that has no place among us as Christians. We're called to honor these people. And again, Romans 13, God has divinely placed them over us. Now, honoring them does not mean agreeing with them in every way. Honoring does not mean going along with everything they say or do. But it does mean showing respect. In fact, I had a conversation with our brother Dave Coleman this week, and he pointed out something that was really excellent. One of the ways we honor people in authority is by vocalizing our disagreements with them. And so we refute arguments, and we confront policy positions, and we advocate for what is good, true, and beautiful in the public square. But we do it in a respectful way. We do it in a way that shows honor to those in positions of authority. And I'll tell you, we're blessed at South Church because I think one of the best examples of this is Brother Dave, Dave Coleman. If you would go on YouTube later today or whenever and search Rouch World versus Michigan Department of Civil Rights, uh, this is an argument that uh, the Great Lakes Justice Center team uh, presented before the Michigan Supreme Court. And uh, Dave is arguing against our Attorney General, Dana Nessel. And in that argument, if you notice, Dave is joyful, winsome, respectful, showing honor to everyone in that room. And yet not once does he back down from the truth. He does not compromise his convictions in doing that. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's like an hour-long video and most of it is boring legal jargon. Uh, <laughs> but Dave's example is worth imitating. So again, think about how we interact with people who disagree with us. Uh, this isn't just the governor and the attorney general. This is the police officer. This is anybody who's been given a place of civil authority for our good. And so we should honor them. And finally, we should do this so that our good works will silence our opponents and our critics. Even if the people around us, and they will and they do, disagree with us, oppose us, criticize us, whatever else they want to do, they should still respect us as people. And they, they may not, but here's what I mean. Uh, Rico Tice is the creator of the Christianity Explored material. And he lives in one of the most secular cities in the world, London. And he said he has very few, I don't, I don't think he has any Christian neighbors but he holds the spare key for almost everyone on his block. Now that says something. That says, okay, I know you're a Christian, and I don't think your God is real. I don't think your view of sexual ethics is good. I don't think the way you uh, think about worship or whatever else, I don't think any of that is good. 
but I trust the kind of person you are to hold my spare key. That's an example of how we can silence our opponents. Right? We don't silence opponents by shouting them down or by arguing on social media. We silence our opponents by doing good to them and by showing them the love of Christ. This week, my son starts back to school. And uh, at his school, they do a lot of memorization and recitation. And at six years old, he puts me to shame with scripture memory. But last year, his final project was to memorize Matthew 5, 1 to 16, and recite it for the rest of the school. And we worked on it together. Uh, I do not have it memorized, so I'm going to read it for you. But just verses 10 to 16, I want you to listen to these words of Jesus very carefully. And think about what Peter is teaching here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed. That means favored by God. That means happy. That means content in this life. Being persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's no good if we're persecuted for doing what we ought not to do. But if when we do right, we are persecuted, we should consider ourselves blessed. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the kingdom of God belongs to those, even those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. How many of us rejoice when we're reviled? How many of us rejoice when we're criticized or cut down or slandered? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Because, this is why we can rejoice, your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. My prayer for us at South Church is that we would be so blessed as this, to glorify God in the days of our exile here on this earth, to do good works and resolve with all the grace that God can give us to submit to the governing authorities. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the Bible is wisdom for all of life. And as we think about our situation, and perhaps increasingly so in this country that we live, we find that our values and our beliefs are coming under fire increasingly. We find that to stand for biblical truth is going to cost us something in this life. And so we recognize that we are sojourners and exiles here, that we are on our way to the better country, to the city that has foundations, to the place where there is no more weeping or mourning or tears. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to persevere as we are on that path together. Help us as a church to be faithful to you throughout all the ups and downs. We pray that you'd give us grace to wage war against the passions of our flesh, the real battle that we face that is within our souls. And help us with all of your power 
to submit to those in authority. Lord, recognizing that you alone are the supreme authority and you alone should we fear. And yet we're called to honor those that providentially you've placed over us. But Lord, we cannot do this on our own. And so we need your help. So we ask your help this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.